On the Empire Podcast this week, we get our Dean on with Community's Jim Rash, here to talk about the way, way back with his co-director Nat Faxon, and Shane Carruth, master of the esoteric indie puzzler, drops in to confound and confuddle us. Plus, we review Michael Bay's Pain and Gain, You're Next, and One Direction, This Is Us, on the only movie podcast that doesn't know it's beautiful, and that's what makes it beautiful. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by my very own three men and a little lady. Oh, God. That's not right. Uh, as ever, I'm joined by three colleagues. Uh, first up is a young whippersnapper who makes us all sound vaguely professional, like we have the faintest clue what the hell it is we're doing. It's Ali Plum. Hello, sir. Hi there. How are you? I'm good, thanks. That is great. I will now move on to the next link. It's our resident art house guru, a man so dedicated to suffering through depressing movies that his snack of choice is a bag of salted cigarette butts and caramelised broken glass. It's filled assembly and hello. Bonjour. <laughs> sure. Ah, oh, you've been brushing up. <laughs> How do they taste, those salted Caramelised broken glass sounds quite nice. It does, doesn't it? It's better than some of them. It's lovely. Uh, and last but not least, it's our queen of the geeks, a woman who was actually, and I'm not making this up, looking at a supernatural cross-stitching pattern earlier this week. Explain yourself, Helen O'Hara. I was wasn't planning to make it. I can't really do embroidery, but Dan Jolin's wife made him a cross-stitched um, Breaking Bad sampler, and mm-hmm. so I was looking at the site that she got the pattern from, and there there was a supernatural one. Okay, let's see formalities out of the way. All save one. Uh, we now have a sponsor. We're delighted to have a sponsor on the podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store for free trial and 10% of your first purchase on new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code, which is EMPIRE9. That offer code again, EMPIRE9. And for more details on that, be sure to stick around to the very end of the podcast where I'll be providing the science portion of the uh, episode (laughs) and you can find out more about it. Fantastic. Uh, Time to crack on with your questions. Uh, Some belters this week. This one comes in from at Mikey Glenning, who asks, which movie characters would you include in your dream rock and roll band lineup? On guitar, Marnie McFly. On bass, Alan Partridge. Oh, yeah, he did display some great sort of Mark Keane-esque bass slapping in Alpha Papa. Singing is difficult because I want to go for Hugh Grant's Alex Fletcher from Music and Lyrics. Mm -hmm. He could also do piano. He could also just do dance. He could be the Bears with maracas. <laughs> uh, I'd be up with that. Uh, but I think I'm going to say George Clooney from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, provided he's fully slicked back his hair, Dapper Dan style, mm-hmm. and is uh, willing to bellow extra loud. I don't know if he'd fit musically with Marty McFly, who has a love of of horrible uh, early 80s rock and, uh, and, and lovely blues. Are you insane? Quite possibly. These guys could make it work. Come on. I would maybe specify there that we want George Clooney's actual voice in that movie to appear somewhere backstage in a sort of, you know, <laughs> singing in the rain style E. Yes, um, yes. I was tempted to just say the lineup of Spinal Tap or the lineup of oh, Wild Stallions, I'll be honest. <clears throat> yeah, well, okay. How about the good robot asses, though, for backup, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. I would say on drums, you can't look past Animal from Animal. the Muppets, can you? What about Kim Pine from Scott Pilgrim on drums? Oh, yeah, She's well, quite yeah. an angry drummer, and you need an angry drummer. Um, Derek yeah. Smalls on bass yeah. and in charge of smuggling cross-border um, on the road when you're touring, which is important. <laughs> Autobahn on keyboards. <laughs> how, how about, like, uh, as backing singers, uh, you could have uh, the the boy group from Joy's, Josie and the Pussycats. Okay. Um, uh, du jour. Du jour, yeah. Yeah. 
I'd like yeah. them as backing singers. They always amused me. I've got an idea for the manager. I think the yes. manager should be... I mean, his real name is is not Ned Schneebly. But Mr. Schneebly, as as the manager, would make me happy. I know he'd want to occasionally just burst onto the stage halfway through, but Jack Black from School of Rock uh, is, is, is my manager for this supergroup, which we're yet to name. So we've got a bunch of anarchists being managed by Jack Black <clears throat> yeah. with some of Spinal Tap. This is going to go really and well. I was going to throw in the banjo boy from Deliverance. It'd be awesome. He could come on like uh, in the middle of um, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. <laughs> so we go, ladies and gentlemen, instead of going, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Elton John. He's he the banjo boy. It's a creepy banjo kid from Deliverance. <laughs> and he comes banjo on every We did this at karaoke recently. Oh, yeah. All the time. And I, um, Sam Toy was the George Michael part and I was the Elton John part. Yeah, and you actually waited outside the room. I waited outside the room. And you so have you to were do introduced. It. it really just whilst everyone else was trying to find a key. Brings, yeah, everyone else was trying to jam the door shut. <laughs> but I, life found a way and <laughs> I emerged in the room. Anyway, can we find a place for Sam Rockwell's dancing in all of this? Oh, this is, is the best have... supergroup ever. He could be in with Hugh Grant in the kind of 80s wham style Duran Duran dance troupe at the front. I feel like we need to, maybe if he doesn't make the full lineup, uh, the reserve could possibly be, um, I really like Jason Lee's singing voice mm. in Almost Famous. And I feel like he needs a hat tip. Mm. Because Fever he, Dog is good. He's just, I mean, Stillwater, which confusingly is also the name of another band in real life, are a great outfit. I would like to throw in Elwood Blues on harmonica. Because I think the polyphonic spree have shown that we don't have to have a limit on how many members we have in no, this band. No, absolutely not. <laughs> we can just flood the stage with people. That'd be great. And I think George Michael Bluth on Wooden Block. Oh, there's a good idea. Can we have Anvil as the opening act? <laughs> I love Anvil. Can we have real bands? I don't know. Is that, oh, is that come crossing on. the streams somewhat here? Well, aren't we? They're real, yes, but at the same time, they're also just magnificently cinematic. I mean, for the line, um, yes, everything went wrong, but at least there was a tour for it to go wrong on. Mm-hmm. Um, alone, they deserve a place <laughs> in this in this lineup. On that basis, could we find a place for Bowie, or is he too? Rocky. Yeah, I mean, he might be too real. No, hang on. He but... turned up in the movie Band Slam the other night to sign up <laughs> Vanessa Hudgens' band at the end. I'm not kidding. Therefore, I think he deserves a place here. Absolutely. I think he actually worked with Autobahn in the 70s, in his <laughs> Berlin period. <laughs> and he could also, you know, judge any walk-offs that came up. He could. He could. <laughs> he could do that. Um, I think I'm going to introduce a bit of class to our rock band, because it is quite rocky at the moment. Uh, and I think we should have a string section in there. And as part of the string section, I think Sigourney Weaver from Ghostbusters should be on there. Wow. And Amadeus. And Amadeus. Rock me Amadeus, Falco. Absolutely. What about the cellist from, um, which Timothy Dalton Bond film was it, Licensed to Kill? Oh yes, Marianne Dabo. Because she's got like, she's got a ready-made sort of getaway device. She has. snowy slopes. Perfect for the muddy fields of Glastonbury. Perfect, exactly. I feel like we've really cracked the, the rock nuts by adding a cellist. I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like ELO. That you've, got, you've got a cover of all the major kind of musical food groups. And we've yeah. done that. Yeah. We need a really big stage now, though. Yeah, to fit in Buckaroo Banzai, at least. Oh, yeah, yeah now you're talking. <laughs> and where <laughs> now, we're now, talking. Now, now you're talking. Let's just start again and just say Buckaroo Banzai and be done with it. Uh, at Lord Hodgkinson asks, uh, what are your favourite scripts? And also, who are your favourite screenwriters? Oh, we could be here a while. Prometheus. <laughs> we're not here a while. We've answered the question. Let's move on. Is Prometheus a screenwriter? Yes, <laughs> Steve Pr- Prometheus. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really de- I mean that's yeah. a great question but it's also like how long do we have because there there have been so many yeah awesome screenwriters but maybe there's a sense that we don't there aren't so many that we talk about in the same tones that we talk about Woody Allen or 
mm. Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder or, and IAL or Diamond. Joseph Mankovic or any of those people. Yeah. I mean, who? Like, oh, we talk about Aaron Sorkin. We get excited when there's an Aaron Sorkin script. And I think David Mamet. There's a few. I think yeah. In terms of in terms of like structure and and sort of classic screenwriting ability nowadays. I mean, I think Shane Black did a really good job with everything basically. Um, but you know, he he actually managed to surprise mm. us with a superhero movie this year. Um, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record. Joss Whedon, I think the first ten minutes of Serenity are a masterclass in screenwriting. He manages to basically introduce everybody, explain the world, set up the villain, and and introduce the plot of the film in about a ten minute period, which is an absolutely brilliant piece of screenwriting. Um, my all time favourites are probably things like Casablanca, His Girl Friday, though. Um, His Girl Friday, Ben Hatch, just mm-hmm. one of the great great screenwriters, and uh, and just so quick and so fast, and a lot of that was was improvisation as well, but. You know, it watching, doesn't hurt to have a great script to start from. And watching those films now, when you consider how much everything's sped up on, in films that we watch these days and in popular culture mm. and in life in general, they still feel so fast. Like, they're still kind of almost difficult to to keep abreast of. Yeah. I remember seeing a Tom Stoppard play in the West End once, and, and every line, every zinger that, he, that landed, the audience, there was like a gap before the audience would start laughing. It was an amazing thing to witness because he was just like that far ahead of... And the writing was that far ahead of the, the way your mind could process it. And those Ben Hesch scripts feel like that. Those old screwball comedies yeah. feel like that, even now, which I think is amazing. Absolutely. I mean, in, in that case, I mean, Rosalind Russell literally brought lines to set because she was worried that, you know, uh, Cary Grant was going to be kind of improvising and getting the better of her. So she actually worked overnight every night coming up with good zingers <clears throat> to kind of insert, which I think helps, obviously, in, in a case like that. But just, yeah, I think I think because we've got so much else going on sometimes now, the 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 script and the room for doing that kind of thing maybe gets lost a little bit. But uh, yeah, another one I'd mentioned, by the way, is uh, Gentleman Fair Blondes. Now, a lot of that, a lot of the best lines, let's be honest, come from the book. So I think that's Anita Luce who has to get um, the credit there. But um, but yeah, it's just, you just want wit and you want speed and mm. you want, you know, dense, layered, great writing. It's hard to look, you know, beyond William Goldman. Yeah. Uh, Elaine May, Neil Simon, David Mamet, as we, has been mentioned. I love Chris McQuarrie's scripts. I think he's a fantastic mm-hmm. screenwriter. It's very interesting. If you, if you listen, um, there's a there's a, uh, an old friend of Empire's called Jeff Goldsmith who runs a uh, fantastic magazine about screenwriting called Backstory, which is on the iPad. So do check it out if you're interested mm-hmm. in screenwriting. It's it's pretty much a bible. Um, I'm not just saying because I wrote for it, uh, but, um, uh, but mostly, but mostly that. Um, but he also does Q and A's <clears throat> in the states with with screenwriters. He does screenings of of films, and he um, I've been to a few, and they're also available as, as podcasts. And if I do recommend a rival podcast, I do recommend that one. And he does incredible Q and A's with people like Brian Helgeland, Chris McQuarrie, like a two hour podcast with Chris McQuarrie, which is just fantastic. And one one sort of through line I found with a lot of the great modern writers is that their first or second scripts they didn't have a clue what they were doing they didn't realise there were rules that they were breaking uh, for Chris McQuarrie for example and Usual Suspects pretty much breaks every major screenwriting rule that is handed down by people like Robert McKee but it's his, probably his best script and he even says that once you become indoctrinated into the Hollywood system you start writing to rules that your scripts do lose a little bit of that edge uh, so I would check out those podcasts but yeah writers of Chris McQuarrie um, uh, writers like Shane Black I'm a huge Shane Black fan uh, Quentin Tarantino and I think Absolutely. looking closer to, to our own shores at the moment there are some fantastic writers playing a trade uh, at the moment in the UK uh, people like Peter Morgan for example who's just the, the king of the biopics and it's really interesting for me recently to see um, and I know we do bang on about them on the podcast a little bit but Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg's scripts are things of beauty uh, that should be framed and hung up on mm-hmm. walls and it's been really interesting to see uh, that they've released finally 
and the screenplays for Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz as interactive screenplays and it's just fascinating to see how those guys work because their scripts are so dense and layered um, with lots of callbacks and setups that pay off 80 pages later uh, it's just a, a fascinating exercise if you like that sort of thing to check it out oh and Frank Darabont as well what about writer-directors? Does anybody have any favourite ones of those? But yeah, I just mentioned Frank Darabont. I, mean, I think he's the, he's a fantastic uh, screenplay writer. If you look at his screenplays, actually, they're really elegant and uh, very uh, densely written. I'd love to have read Cormac McCarthy's uh, screenplay for The Counselor because apparently, he and being Cormac McCarthy, he didn't format it in the usual uh, way, uh, which was interesting. Lots of paragraphs and very little in the way of the, the dialogue wasn't set up in the right way and, and so on and so forth. He would have loved you to have read it as well. I'm sure he would have been honoured. <laughs> what do you think? No, paragraphs are all wrong. Yeah, paragraphs. Yeah, you need to reformat that. Cormac, I can understand What's that bit. Going on? Yeah, use punctuation, mate. What are you doing? Woody Allen. And Tarantino, obviously, as well. Occasionally, it feels like it's slight, sometimes the script's slightly fallen in love with themselves at certain moments. That's a trap for many writer-directors, where you have to have that check. You've got to have that balance. And sometimes you go, yeah, that's great. And it is great, but it may not be something you should keep in the final cut of the film. There are certainly moments in Django Unchained, which is a movie I really enjoyed. I haven't watched it twice, so I think I haven't fully given it my critical appraisal. But there were moments in it when I was watching it for the first time where I went, I wonder whether that should have been in there. I'm enjoying it, but should that have been in there? Yeah, it had some great dialogue, and Christoph Waltz's dialogue in particular. Some, I just think maybe structurally that there were slight issues with it towards the end. But yeah, he's a, I mean, he's just a little bit like Shane Black, I suppose. It's kind of the subversiveness of it. Like, just kind of twisting the mm. norms mm. in a really funny, interesting way, which is why Iron Man 3 was such a joy because it's at least the last thing you expect are the things that are coming out of people's mouths. Yeah. You know, when when um, Tony Stark tells the kid, to, what is it, like, man up, yeah. whatever. I mean, you just, don't be, don't that doesn't pussy, happen. Yeah. And I think there isn't enough of that. And maybe with the studio system being as it is, it's difficult for screenwriters. They have to they have to, other factors to think about that maybe Ben Hesh didn't mm. have to worry about back in those days, like the franchise thing, the, you know, setting up the next movie thing. And, and that must be a killer if you're, like, working towards a concluding third act and you have to open it up again. So, I don't know, it's difficult. I think it's a difficult, incredibly difficult job and they don't get enough acclaim absolutely um, and I'll, I'll, we should credit uh, Drew Pierce as well who I think actually wrote that line in Iron Man 3 but you know the, yes I apologise Drew absolutely of, of um, did we mention Billy Wilder enough we, we did, I yeah. don't think we have actually. let's mention him, mention him again Billy Wilder Billy Wilder Billy Wilder you can't mention Billy Wilder and not mention his number one super fan who waves pom-poms and shouts up and down every time anybody in the world says Billy Wilder Cameron Crowe oh is, yeah, yeah 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 he's a writer-director mm. where no matter what movie he makes, and I'm not saying that We Bought a Zoo is We Bought a Zoo is a classic, but no matter what he writes, I watch that film. I'm so into you, Cameron. I'm so <laughs> I'm so into that. Thanks, J Lo. That that the writing that he he reduces seemingly easily that I can't get enough of him. Also, as he's he's got a movie coming out next week, Richard Curtis. Uh, I know he. Um, mm. He has made many moviegoers uh, cinematically diabetic, uh, but he may be schmaltzy he may sugar it up something chronic but there's something about him and I can't help but love him to mm. pieces and he also wrote Blackadder so yeah. you know yin and yang I wanted to mention Padachevsky and Network yeah. which I think mm. is one of my favourite scripts as well and he's I think one of the only people that's won three standalone screenwriting Oscars and the Coen brothers we haven't said the Coen brothers and oh, uh, yeah. their dialogue is incredible and and also they also know when to get out of the way and and 
use other people's dialogue. True Grit is a really good example. Some of the most Cohen-y sounding lines in that movie actually come straight from the book. Um, and but they just they they fit and they knew what to do with it and they put it on screen brilliantly. But uh, but yeah, everything they've done I've pretty much loved. And just the way they use language and the way they twist words to just give a slightly unexpected turn to things is amazing. Yeah. I think in five years' time, there's going to be a big expose about how Gambit was made, because that was written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, but was directed uh, by somebody entirely different, and it isn't very good, and the script isn't very good. It is a very strange film. I did not like it in any way, but bear in mind, they also wrote The Lady Killers, but they wrote The Lady Killers for regular cinematographer and Men in Black director Barry Sonnenfeld, and he pulled out at the last moment, stayed on as producer, mind you. And I think that's interesting to note that I think when they're not writing for themselves, they produce their perhaps less good work. Uh, hmm. They kind of give it away and say, look, you, you do with it what you will. Um, so anyway, that's just a, a note. And I think we can't have any discussion about great screenwriters without mentioning the, uh, the name of Kiva Goldsman, uh, the Oscar-winning writer of Batman and Robin. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> And Paul and Pressburger. Yeah, this oh, thing. God, yeah. The, once you get in the role with this question, you could be here all day. And everyone, well, basically. And Ben Affleck. Love everyone. Recently, Spike Lee, mm. Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, the, the list goes on and on and on. So Larry Cohen. You. Should we just continue just naming names? Yeah, throughout all throughout the rest of the podcast, if you think I'm the great matter, just just throw in with the name. Shout okay, out. let's move on to a question. This is from uh, John O'Forward. This is via email. Someone has actually emailed us, podcast at com. I was in France last week. I saw that Hummingbird is called Crazy Joe. Jason Statham is Crazy Joe. What other films have been given better titles on foreign release? Now, Ali, you're usually full of facts. Do you have any facts? I've loads of facts. I've got so many facts that I'm going to do a little quiz. Who wants to play a quiz? Oh, I like quizzes. Yeah, good. I want you to tell me the English name of what I'm about to say. First one's easy. Les Dons de la Mer. Something by C. Mer is C. Isn't it? Shut up, Helen. The Life um, Aquatic. No, the Donned, the Donned, the Round, the Sea is Round. It's, in English, it's literally the Teeth of the Sea. The Teeth of the Sea. Jaws! Correct! Oh, that's what I knew! This is also French. Yes. Very Bad Trip. Shinless List. The Hangover. Correct, Chris, not Phil. Germany. The Baby Nader. <laughs> <laughs> what? What film, English Hollywood film, is called in Germany The Baby Nader? Is it Kindergarten junior? Cop. No, no. The Pacifier. Correct. Oh, wow. Chris <laughs> is currently winning. The Baby Nader. In China, Six Naked Pigs. What the hell? Reservoir Dogs. No. Oh, that's a good guess. Babe. No. Babe in the City. No. <laughs> LA Confidential. No. Get away from the police angle. Oh, I didn't even realise I was going no. up. <laughs> what police angle? Just saying Soylent Green. No, no, give us another clue. Six naked pigs. Six naked. Magic Mike. Confetti. It's got naked people in it. Helen's closest with Magic Mike. Showgirls. Monty. Correct, Chris. Oh. oh, that's a bit mean. Goal hanger. Total goal hanger. In Japan, Captain Supermarket. <laughs> Army of Darkness. Correct. I know oh. that one. Santa is a pervert. This is from <laughs> Czechoslovakia, as was now. It's Bad from the Czech Santa. Republic. Yeah. <laughs> In Israel, this one's easy. Reign of Falafel. Clyde with a chance of meatballs. Correct. Really? That's <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> I've got another one. This is from Italy. Give me one. If you leave me, I delete you. Oh. Social network. No. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Correct. Very good. That's like a good. little bit of poetry in translation. China. One night, big belly. <laughs> what? One night. Alien. 
Um, oh, knocked up. Correct. Okay. And uh-huh. those are all of my silly questions. Thank you for playing, <laughs> well everyone. That was great. Can you edit in like um, noises? No, uh, <laughs> I did too much there last week. <laughs> that was absolutely um, amazing. Love that yeah, was good. That was oh, you got good. more, Helen. You got more. No, I was just going to say. I mean, it's not really a silly title at all. I just really like "Lomki Murmurayo is a raid de cheveux," which is cheveux, I think, which is the man who who whispered in the ears of horses, which is the horse whisperer. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, and kind of long-winded. Yeah, like the film. Anyway, Stuart Allen. Well, by- I've got one. Oh, you got one? Yeah, I got one. Uh, in Italy, I was in Italy when I saw it at the cinema. That rather ropey Clark Duke comedy, Sex Drive, is just called Sex Movie in 4D. Really? Yeah. And you, that's why you went to see it? It was amazing. In 4D. I, th- I think in China they called uh, American Pie, I think this is right, I'm, I might be misremembering it. Uh, I think it's like uh, American American Virgin Movie. Yes. <laughs> Which is just a bit blunt. American Virgin Movie. The title of Army of Darkness in Japan is interesting because it indicates that they got the version with the supermarket ending the S-Mart ending rather than the alternative ending which is the post-apocalyptic London ending in which she doesn't even go to a supermarket that's 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 vaguely interesting. interesting even more interesting than that dare I say it is yeah. their official poster for that and it is the most incredible poster you'll ever see and as a poster now I trust me it's the same poster you know you know Ash Chainsaw standing topless <laughs> looking like a dude on top of Campbell's soup cans that are floating in a weird sea because what they've done is he's Captain Supermarket he's called Bruce Campbell oh okay yeah I get it oh that works on at least half a level maybe maybe half a level do check that out hang on recently in Mexico they had the heat come out and it was renamed Armada y Peligrosa which means armed and dangerous Mm -hmm. and they also had two guns I think it was come out which was Armado y Peligroso which means armed and dangerous but But masculine masculine form even I knew that and I, my, my knowledge of French is terrible um, why don't we do that well, and Morris Peros comes out why don't we call it like because we respect language and all it's for love dogs <laughs> love dogs <laughs> you see love dogs you get confused with must love dogs yeah that's I mean, why you'd expect to see John Cusack John, John, John Cusack John Cusack and Diane Lane falling in love and said you see some horrible dog fighting thing which is a very good film what about and your mother too? To your mama? It just doesn't sound as good. Sounds like a nice cute. Film. And yeah. your mama? Yeah, they it's would just, have to call it yo mama, yeah. and that wouldn't work. It's just begging to get into a fight with a cashier at the cinema, isn't it? Uh, right, moving on. Stuart Allen via email again has said, uh, having seen at least twenty percent, and the thing about email questions is that they're longer than Twitter questions. Having seen at least twenty percent of the audience walk out of Only God Forgives, I can't imagine why. I was wondering what other films you've seen that most people leave early. Other films I remember seeing lots of people leave are Punch Drunk Love, more than you, PT. Anderson and the new Adam Sandler and Adaptation maybe people thought it was hard to follow interesting I'm going to spin it around as well to see uh, whether there are any films that we have walked out of early I walked out of Captain Supermarket because it was in Japanese (laughs) (laughs) true story at no point in the first hour and a half there wasn't even a supermarket what the hell is that about (laughs) at university I actually walked out of um, leaving Las Vegas mostly just because it was a Friday night and I couldn't take anything that, that sad yeah, that's a very, no very fair point. I uh, I walked out of the only movie I've ever walked out of in the cinema was Liar Liar, um, because I didn't think it was that funny, and I could see the end coming a mile away, and I was in a very bad mood, and I didn't want to be drowned in a wave of sentiment. So I walked out, and I've never seen it. I also walked out uh, of Captain Ron, but that was in VHS, so I actually had to leave the room. 
<laughs> I think that made more of a statement than just stopping it and ejecting it from the player. I thought it was, this is so terrible, I'm going to leave the room. Wow. Take that, Captain Ron. Wow, hmm. that, that really showed Captain Ron. Yeah, I didn't tell Kurt Russell that whenever I, I met him. That does mean you missed the great bloopers at the end of Liar Liar, which is a bit of a shame. There are bloopers at the end? Of, no, they're probably on YouTube. I'll probably. check those out. Yeah, fair I'll check fair those out. But the kid was so horrible and I knew they were going to reconcile and I just wanted the kid to die. And it was, oh, he did. He died, die. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Oh, unless you're lying. What? Yeah, yeah his alternate name was Dire Dire. Oh, that's great. Awesome. Uh, Phil, have you walked out of a film? Uh, I've walked out of a film this summer, actually, which I'm a bit embarrassed to, to mention, but it was Pacific Rim. <gasps> Purely because, a bit like you, it was, it was a beautiful sunny Friday evening, and I just wanted to be outside, and I was also pretty bored. Right. I don't normally walk out of films. It's a bit like I was talking about it last night. It's the same with books. You don't finish a book. You feel like there's something that you haven't finished hanging over you, and I don't like to walk out of films because. That's not my job to do that. Yes, so, I agree. And I, when, I, when I saw Lara Lara, I wasn't a film critic. Uh, and I guess the same from you guys as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, but what about the other question that Stuart Allen has posed, the actual question he posed? Uh, what other films have you seen people leave early? I, I distinctly remember watching people uh, watch Natural Born Killers in, uh, in Lurgan in Northern Ireland when it came out. And I remember about halfway through... Uh, two guys got up walked out and as they left <laughs> they said very loudly to everyone else how the hell can you watch this shite and then and then left I don't know about seeing people walk out I'm, I'm really struggling to think of any um, the thing that kind of comes to mind is, is again it's not a walkout story it's the end of The Fellowship of the Ring um, which I saw quite a number of times uh, in Houston, Texas and except for the first time which was a midnight showing and was full of fans every single time I heard somebody nearby saying that was a weird ending it didn't really have an ending and I had to sort of you know I felt it my public duty to really lean over and just sort of say there's another one in fact there are two more coming and did they thank you? Um, yes they did actually oh, good, <laughs> thank good. god and didn't just sh- throw things at me or shoot you or shoot which me. in Texas I believe is their god given right uh, yes they, they do like to shoot people in Texas Excellent. apologies to all Texan listeners uh, Ali have you ever seen anyone walk out of a, of a film well I've seen obviously I was sitting next to Phil at um, did you try and drag him did you try and restrain him no 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 no. He, he spent most of the movie before he left sleeping so I <laughs> I don't really want to poke that bear <laughs> it was a really long week you weren't reviewing a film were you <laughs> Just yeah yeah there were holes there were plot holes in my review Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim is a very dark vision <laughs> uh, it's a very elliptical movie it doesn't seem to be a lot of logic to the plot I'd like to say that I will watch it again properly when I'm just a bit more in a mood for a movie than okay. I was that night All right. I saw people walking out of Lone Ranger and I know why it's just that it was too long and I heard somebody I heard somebody saying this is fun but I've got to go home uh, so he just picked up his, his bag and I think he had one of those little you know contracting bikes and he just left oh, the thing that you get nowadays is there's so many post credits things people sort of they sit there and they watch a few of the credits and they kind of like stretch and they pick up their bags and they start to walk out and then there's more stuff and then they sort of stop and like start watching it from the out and then you've got people like sitting down and standing up and walking in and coming out and it's that's not a very interesting story <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky to have me here today. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> but it does there's, there's no chance you can walk out of this podcast. No, I'm not going to walk out of this podcast. I can't move. Partridge, I watched the end of Partridge and it happened. Anyway, Great. That was the thing that happened. Great. Thanks, Phil. Thanks Bye. For, thanks for sharing. Um, Sorry, Ali. Yeah. I'd love to. I've never been in the horror movie where someone's walked out or or fainted or, or vomited. 
No. Uh, that's my, that's my, my well, goal. Hey, you know, fingers crossed. One day. One day. Thanks for your questions. Some absolute crackers there. Now, as you know, we ran a competition last week in association with our new Overlord Squarespace that gave one listener the chance to win Breaking Bad Seasons 1 to 5.1 on Blu-ray. The question was, what is the name of Walter White's wife? And it was a question so embarrassingly easy that even Badger or Skinny Pete might have got it right. It was, of course, Skyler. Skyler White. And the winner was, drumroll everybody, Simon Myring. Simon Myring of Worcestershire. Well done, Simon. You got the answer. And uh, that box set will be winging its way to you very, very soon indeed. Now, if you do want to get in touch with us uh, to ask us questions or, or have comments read out on the pod, we're on Twitter at Emperor Magazine. Use the hashtag Emperor Podcast, otherwise we won't see it. We're on Facebook as well, Emperor Magazine. And you can email us, as people have done this week, podcast at empireonline.com. Make them good, people. Make them good. Okay, our first guest this week, uh, Shane Carruth, is one of the darlings of the new American indie cinema. He's the one-man band who wrote and directed the brilliant and dense time travel movie Primer. And he's back this week with Upstream Colour, an equally challenging drama that's ostensibly about... Well, you'll see. Uh, Caruth, who also stars in the movie and did the music and made the tea, popped in to talk to Phil and Ali about it. Enjoy. What is your response to people who ask you what this film is about? Like, uh, plot-wise? Plot or, or, like, why does it exist? Like, why would somebody make this? I almost want to just say to you, interpret that as you wish. Because yeah. I feel like a lot of people must come up to you when they do come up to you and say, tell me what the secret of this film is. What is it about? How does it work? Right. I can speak to that on a thousand different levels. You know, me being here talking is sort of counterintuitive, maybe, for anything that thinks of itself as being literature or aspiring to be literature. Because why would an author show up and uh, with with material that is clearly veiled and then suddenly unveil it in in text? Why would he do that? That doesn't. That seems wrong. And yet here I am. And the only thing, the only excuse I make for myself is I think about things on a, on a, a pretty long timeline. And, and I have a work that I'm very proud of. And I my, my best hope for it is that it's relevant at some point in the future. But for that, that means it has to infect the present at some threshold. And so that's why I'm happy to talk to anybody and everybody to sort of get that going. <laughs> but then, you know, the answer to the question is... I don't. I don't typically tell anybody what it's. I think it's clear. the The film is definitely clear that it's telegraphing roughly what it's about, like the rough edges of what it's about in one viewing. But it's also pretty dense and lyrical. Um, and I. I think at this point, um, I think people have the confidence that it's not just a random assemblage of, of <laughs> ideas. That it's all there for a purpose, and that there's enough that's clear about it. Um, and and in visiting it maybe a second time or dwelling on it or having conversations in a cafe enough becomes clear that it's okay that it's it, it can be pulled apart and once pulled apart there is something there so at that point I sort of need to disappear from the conversation to be honest but that's kind of when people want to track you down and 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 talk but, to you but the do most they? do you believe that I mean do you because like for me for instance uh, the the works that I find really compelling if you know whatever not to make the assumption that this is compelling anyways um i don't i don't want to talk to the author i want to talk to my brothers i want to talk to you know people that have seen it and uh that's who i want to talk to well let's talk about practicalities then like this is this is a reasonably long time coming since your last feature uh-huh. what, what took so long uh you know just lazy no i uh i was trying to get something else made this other bigger deal um a studio system film well it would have needed money um, I don't know if it ever technically would have been a studio film. 
um, sort of the way Ryan Johnson, you know, did did Looper. Him and his producer Ron Bergman did Looper, but it, it wasn't a studio film. But they they managed to secure you know real financing. That's what this was trying to be. Because you had some big name kind of producers involved. Uh, I did. They were uh, yeah. They were nice. Soderbergh and, and Fincher were nice enough to lend their name to the project to you know secure financing. Um, I can't wait to get into what I actually am going to do. Um, it's this thing called the Modern Ocean, and it's it's going to be a very good thing. Um, this sounds completely different. Yeah, it is completely different. It is almost, but it it's it's yeah, it is. It's it's um tell it's us, removed us. of genre. It's or anything that could be mistaken for otherworldly or genre. Um, it's I mean it's it's um it's people that are um trying to perfect trading routes at sea to make them more and more profitable but that's the backdrop and what it really is is just a massively tragic romance for the most part of characters following these projections of what they they think is in front of them and they're all at odds and then we wind up with pirates and privateers and ships at war at sea and um so it's a full-on period piece no it's modern day oh okay right well that's funny because we've got tom hanks starring in somali pirates um, the, it, sort of. These are there's going to be some Somalians involved, but it's more or less people that are cheating each other and find each other at sea with boats and um, vendettas. Okay. I'm curious about. You mentioned financing and people not writing checks but saying nice things. What is your take on this whole Kickstarter phenomenon, which was brought up by Rob Thomas and Kristen Bell, and has now been picked up again by Zach Braff? If I were you, and I'm not putting words in your mouth here, I'd be pretty naffed off that millionaires like him are asking for cash. <laughs> it's pretty, um, it's something, isn't it? It is something. Does it, let's just, let's just leave the uncomfortable silence hanging for a moment. Um, does it something that appeals to you as a, as a, as a funding well, device? Something that I look, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to just write it off because of, I'm not, uh, I, what I've figured out in the last few months is like if I was to ever do that, the only thing I'm really comfortable with is something that's transactional. Um, and what I mean is literally an 18-month pre-order on an eventual Blu-ray or download, and mm. then maybe a physical item now. Not a not a tchotchke, not a, a sticker, not getting your name in the credits, not not trying to um, promote fandom or whatever that is. But but I mean we've we figured out we figured out consumerism. I'm I'm fine with that. I'm fine with, you know, here's here's the cost of 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 the eventual book, Blu-ray, disc, theater ticket, whatever. That makes sense to me. It's the other stuff that's I I don't quite understand it. Um, so and it, I, that's not true. Sorry, I should I should say I understand it. But even me, who's not really had any real success, that's the small bit of success I've had means to me that I shouldn't be asking for handouts. I should be earning um if i can mm. but your i mean your debut film primer we've talked about already i mean it's got to be an object lesson for anyone that, that <laughs> wants to get into filmmaking it's seven thousand yeah. dollars in your garage yeah it doesn't look like a seven thousand dollar movie i hear that and i'm so glad i, I, <laughs> I just i'm assuming you didn't pay anyone <laughs> no 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 or feed no them on set well no and but but yes and that's the thing and is, he took their shoes and sold them on ebay exactly that's that's how we fund it i'm still doing it i still have their <laughs> shoes they're not getting them back um yeah no i mean yeah nobody got paid on that um and um 
yeah, I mean, it's a it's a level of film. I mean, but the reality is, is that I right before I did that, just to learn anything about film, I did the sound on a movie that had a three hundred thousand dollar budget, and no one got paid on that movie either. So I don't know where that money goes. Um, but that's typically the uh, sorry, that was dollars. I know we're pounds, and that's okay. all good. It's okay. Yeah. Phil and I watched Primer on Netflix. That's how we, we got at it. Mm-hmm. How does it work for a small independent filmmaker when he makes a film and then it ends up on Netflix? How, how does the money that we're paying get back to you? Sure. And is this something you're endorsing? Are, are you pro-streaming? Is that how you want people to watch your films? That's, that's a lot. Um, let's see. Okay, so there's transactional. So there's, like in the States, the biggest one is iTunes, and then Amazon has their instant, and I think Love Film... No, sorry, Love Film is streaming over here, right? Mm-hmm. Not sure. Um, okay, so there's transactional, um, and I can't speak to other filmmakers because having had a distributor once, that whole system is 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 hidden from my view. I get I would get producer reports, and even then I would have to badger to get them. Um, but they were very broad and very general in in how, where the revenue was coming from. So I had no idea. This time around in the states, I'm the distributor, so I know everything. Um, and so with Primer, I put Primer into iTunes, so I know exactly like every I could check the sales right now. Wow! On a you know daily basis, um, even me and my brother wrote um, um, a web page to chart the rankings in the iTunes system. And then now that we know that if you are ranked in the top you know whatever twenty of sci-fi films, it's worth this many dollars in transaction. We sort of just know how things pan out. Um, so I'm learning a lot, and with Upstream, learning even more about you know uh, number of units shipped for the Blu-ray versus you know um, iTunes pre-sales versus pre-sales from the actual our own website. Um, so I know all of it, and I mean to answer your question about Netflix, um, they don't pay per transaction; they pay a licensing fee, and that's a negotiable thing. And what we did with Primer is it's pegged to the box office. So there's a certain percentage that they say, look, whatever your box office was domestically, we'll pay this percentage of that annually to to be able to stream this to our members. And so if there if that sounds like something to me that I'm willing to cannibalize transactional sales from iTunes and wherever else, then um, I agree to it. And so, yeah. So it is not dependent on how many people are actually watching the film. Right. It's you do not just... get paid by more people watching. Yeah. But doesn't that kind of defeat the object of, you know, the, 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 the slow burner or the sleeper hit or the... No, but this is part of the sleeper hit. For me, I'm watching on Netflix, then I go, you've got to see this film. Right. Well, the thing is... is Which you don't you... benefit from as a filmmaker. No, but that's why I would want Netflix to be further down the road. It's the equivalent of, you know, showing up on premium cable or television. Um, it's, it's a licensing fee. Uh, it doesn't really benefit the creators to have more people watch it other than it become, it makes that film you know more famous in the world, I guess. You know, I find this stuff fascinating. I, I wouldn't normally sit down with Michael Bay, not that I'm com- comparing you to Michael Bay, and say, what about the money? But uh, I, just for somebody who's making movies for $7,000, I want to make sure that you're getting the money back. Well, it, it, to be honest, it's so important to me because, well, right now, look, here's the thing. Upstream is... I believe a good work. It's on its way out the door to school, basically. I feel like it's my daughter, and, and we, we figured out college tuition, and she's on her way out. But there's another baby on the way. And so now we're starting to think about, well, how is this kid going to go to college? So since this upstream's safe, now I'm starting to think about Modern Ocean. And so everything that I'm doing as far as distribution for upstream or you know, paying attention to the distribution is... One, to make sure that we're crafting the marketing properly, 
um, and that it's contextualizing the film. <clears throat> but the other side, the crass side, the money side, is to pay for the next film because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get financing from anybody. Um, I think I've proven that with the last nine years. So, but the good thing about what we're doing in the states, at least, with the distribution, and and if this film you know does wind up being profitable, is that every you know every dollar, every pound it makes, whatever or that I receive goes into the next film. So, mm. Um, I, I like that model. That makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Transformers 5 may not be on the horizon for you, but there must be the possibility. <laughs> I would love to see that. That would be amazing. I, yeah, especially what we've seen in the uh, yeah. effects. Yeah. You should do it. But um, Hollywood, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a reductive question. You know, phone calls from Hollywood, big movie, you know, people like you, Ryan Johnson, and, yeah. you know, Duncan Jones has got the big... People have come out of, you know, not niche, but but, but cerebral sci-fi. Right. Are obviously on the radar in, 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 in Burbank and places and studios. Are that you expecting... Would you have those conversations? Would you be interested in having those conversations? No, no. Not at any point? No, I... Well, I... I thought there was a chance that there was some common ground, maybe maybe a small bit of common ground between you know what they want from who, whatever they think I am and, and what I would want from them. But I mean, there there really isn't. There's no common ground. Um, I mean, the bottom line is they anybody anybody who thinks that because they have a checkbook means that they have an opinion about the story. I don't mean to be insulting, but that's that's wrongheaded. That's not correct. And unfortunately, I I can't. I can't engage with that really. Um, it just doesn't work. Best of luck with Upstream. Well, thank you guys so and much. And the next really project. Does it have a name? It does. It's called The Modern Ocean. The Modern Ocean. Yeah. Are you going to be in it? I don't know. I don't have plans, but um, it, it, it's a wider cast of characters. So I don't know. I don't have any plans. Come on. Who doesn't want to be a pirate or a ship captain? I mean, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Big thanks. Of course. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Movie news time. Biggest movie news this week, of course, is that the new issue of Empire has hit shelves with the force of an enchanted Norse hammer for Thor The Dark World is on the cover, or covers. Uh, for Tom Hiddleston's Loki is getting his cold day in the sun alongside Chris Hemsworth, and Hiddlestoners have been going nuts for the covers, especially our Loki subscribers cover, which is uh, fetching big money on eBay. Kind of crazy that people are... are um you know, spending that much, but more power to you if you love Hiddleston. Absolutely. I guess that's the way to go. Uh, what else is in the magazine? Though it is a belter of an issue. We also have uh, the cover feature is about Thor: The Dark World. Dan Jolin visited the set. I uh, spoke extensively to both Hemsworth and Hiddleston about the rivalry between Thor and Loki. What else do we have? Uh, we also have uh, Naomi Watts ahead of her performance as Diana, uh, talking through her career and her decision to do that. Uh, it's our feature on Ender's Game. Uh, Nick was on set and reports from there uh, with all the latest from Harrison Ford and the team. Uh, we talked to Richard Curtis about About Time and uh, Donald Gleason as well. Um, again, on set of that one and it's a really it's not the film you think it's going to be necessarily going in uh, and also if you subscribe to our iPad edition if you if you buy that one there's a very very funny interactive video with, with uh, Donald Gleason that you can click on using your fingers uh, which is good definitely uh, yeah. we also have uh, a piece on the making of Terminator which I mean I thought I kind of knew this story but there were some some very interesting new tidbits in there James McAvoy goes to the dark side in filth mm -hmm. um, we've headlined that grot fuzz which I'm particularly impressed by very good work on that one um, and uh, and we also were at Star Wars Celebration Europe. You, in fact, were at Star Wars Celebration Europe, Chris. Yes, I thought I did not write the feature. No, indeed. That I was, was in, in Freer. Yes. Um, we've also got The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, so that's the latest from the new Martin Scorsese with that amazing 
very funny, very weird trailer, which I can't wait to see. Um, and that's just the features section. I mean, Metallica tell us the price of a pint of milk. Yeah, and one of the more uh, left-field uh, <laughs> milks we've ever had. But to hell with it, we've had Dave Grohl. That's that's I have Metallica as well. What was that's, your what was your sort of headline trail for that? Uh, Ender Milkman. In our own location section, which is edited by moi, we have uh, a set of report from Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom, Michelle Gondry's Mood Indigo, and something I'm very, very happy with, uh, our amazing six-page, two-day set visit uh, on the set of uh, Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. I uh, saw some amazing things and wrote it down for your entertainment and edification. So do check that one out. It's just £3.99 in all good and evil news agents. So uh, do check that one out. It is an absolute belter. It also obviously has all the month's movie news, views, reviews, and other things that rhyme with ooze. ooze. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Went wrong. It did go a little bit wrong. But, uh, but there you go. Anyway, that's the new issue of Empire. That's the shilling section over now. What else have we got? Um, I've got some Matt Damon news this week. Is going to be starring... <laughs> In Interstellar, he's going to have a small role in the film, which will apparently involve him spending two weeks in Iceland. It's one of the positive stories. In negative news, he will not be playing Robin, so all those people <laughs> making that obvious joke on Twitter last Friday will be vastly disappointed. Um, apparently it's because he's slightly older than Ben Affleck and he doesn't think Robin should be older than Batman. So, sorry about that. And he is also not in talks to return to the Bourne franchise. There were reports this week that both he and Paul Greengrass were uh, in talks to return. This is not the case and has been scotched by Universal Studios themselves. To finish on a positive note, he may, however, Damon, may have ever uh, have lined up at last his directorial debut. He is apparently looking at The Foreigner. Now, that's based on a story in The New Yorker from a couple of years back by uh, David Gran called A Murder Foretold. The link is in our news story on the website and is, it's definitely worth reading. Um, it's uh, a story set in Guatemala. It redefines kind of Baroque conspiracy plotting uh, as stories go and it's all uh, based on a true story it's being uh, adapted by the guy who did Argo which is another kind of reason to get excited but it's about the death of a guy called Rodrigo Rosenberg in Guatemala Um, he left behind a videotape implicating the president in his death the president the president's wife and the vice president in his death Um, and it was uh, investigated by a judge called Castresana and I'm, I'm guessing he must be the foreigner of the title because he's, uh, I believe, Spanish. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, it was his job to kind of unravel what had gone on. And if you, I mean, it's all in the, the article in the New Yorker, but it's a very complicated plot and it'd be a really interesting one for Matt Damon to challenge. Sounds amazing. And it's really interesting. Uh, David Grant's a fantastic writer for the New Yorker. Yeah. His brilliant uh, collection of articles from the New Yorker, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, is a great read, so do check it out. But it's also interesting that there's been a, uh, an increasing tradition now for magazine articles to be adapted into movies and Michael Mann's The Insider was based on a magazine yeah. article and I believe uh, Disney and Marvel have uh, agreed the rights to our Thor The Dark World article and they turned that into a movie you're kidding when will that be out uh, it's out in October that is they, fast they've, they've moved pretty pretty wow. fast uh, any other news guys that's not Mad Damon related well interestingly just to touch on what you just said Pain and Gain of course was based on an yeah. article yeah indeed uh, so what I've got for you is uh, basically for loafer fans <laughs> the loaf is out there power uh, to you power to you is the Vodafone one isn't it yeah. anyway uh, he's a loaf cannon uh, he is going to be uh, in his own movie Idris Elba the one and only loafer I will stop I can't but I, I hopefully will uh, the writer the man the script writer the screenwriter, the showrunner uh, behind Luther his name is Neil Cross uh, he is an established crime fiction writer and he actually wrote a book 
kind of that connected what happened before the first episode of Luther, which I believe is called The Calling. He's turning this prequel to the uh, three Luther seasons that we've already seen uh, into a movie. He's written the script already. He was talking at the Edinburgh Television Festival this week, and uh, this is what he said. I've written the script, and we hope to get a film made next year. Idris is a brilliant leading man, and we've hoped to turn Luther into a movie for a long time. Uh, he also touched on the fact that, obviously, because it's a prequel, we won't be seeing Alice, who is Ruth Wilson's amazing red-haired psychopath. <laughs> uh, and she, she, he has said on that topic, the truth is, I absolutely adore Alice. We're kind of thinking very loosely of a mix between the talented Mr. Ripley and The Last Seduction for a possible spin-off TV show. I think he was being a little um, silly with that one. But it's very exciting that he will be doing a new Luther movie. And also, because it's a prequel, we will get to see Indira Varma's Zoe come back who i absolutely loved so yes that's all very exciting big fan of luther more power to him fast and furious 7 has no it doesn't have luther in it okay or matt damon but it does have tony Jaa on backstar in the making back in what, 2003 hasn't really kind of pushed on in the way that people expected him to but he has got a part in james wan's fast and furious 7 which starts shooting like tomorrow in cinemas on Tuesday next week (laughs) (laughs) so look that's going to be fun but James Wan turns things around pretty quickly he's made two films this year alone they are not messing around they just aren't messing around apparently there'll be a part in there'll be a section set in the Middle East and it will be mainly though set in Los Angeles it's about coming home and dealing with the fallout of of being free men again Uh, I, I guess it won't last too long considering let's just say it the Stave, yeah, <gasps> who sounds a lot like Luther, uh, is on their tails and is is after after their blood. Uh, thank you for your movie news. It was hot, movie-ish, and newsy. Um, second guest time now says here, or should I say? Guests. Nat Faxon and Jim Rash have been writing partners for a while now and picked up Oscars alongside Alexander Payne for their work on The Descendants. They parlayed their new clout into getting a directing gig on the bittersweet coming-of-age tale The Way Way Back, which stars Steve Carell, Sam Rockwell, Alison Janney and Tony Collette. And they dropped into the pod booth to talk to Helen and Ollie Richards. Uh, and because we're polite, we didn't dress up to the Dean from Community, did we, Helen? No, uh, which took a lot of re- self-restraint because I really like that, you know, banana hat. Yeah, and Ollie looks terrible in heels. Well... There's also that. Enjoy. Okay, well, welcome to the Empire Podcast. We are joined today by Jim Rash and Nat Faxon of The Way Way Back. Welcome. Thank ah, you very much. Yes, thanks for having us. I hadn't come across this phrase before, but I seem to recall reading since I saw the film, The Way Back can refer to the back of a station wagon. Is this correct? So it's kind of a yes. Yes. sort of a title? Yes, The Way Way yes. Back. Uh, most people would say, oh, it's The Way Way Back or The Way Back. Uh, is usually these old um, seats in the back of like those 1970s station wagons that sort of face the rear and sort of popped up they're very dangerous basically. they're very smart it's they're very, very smart ill-conceived just... ideas where <laughs> children are watching danger approach them uh, before you see it uh, but basically uh, both of us had spent some time in the way way back and that was uh, and certainly where the movie begins is in that seat it also thematically works um, just in the sense that the main character Duncan and his mom are sort of finding their way back to each other. Oh. So it works on many levels, guys. Mm-hmm. It's wow. really intense. Your listeners are like, <laughs> mine's just got blown. <laughs> totally. And you two have worked together for a long time, but uh, which one of you can take the credit for actually having sown the idea for this movie? Mm. Oh, that's tough because we don't, right, have, we, don't, we don't have enough room to fight in this small space. <laughs> I think it was a combination. We sort yeah, of yeah, we had a, a couple of ideas come together that mm-hmm. sort of made the movie. 
Yeah, uh, I think we we both grew up on the east coast of the states and frequented water parks uh, quite a bit, and there was something about that environment that felt so ripe and so easy to fill it with eclectic, crazy characters, and so that was sort of enticing, and I think at one point we thought, oh, let's do a big sort of broad comedy set in a water park, and then we also had a, a personal story that happened at Jim, and then the movie's sort of tone shifted when we started no. writing. Because as soon as you said it had something to do with Jim, the tone just shifted. <laughs> well, it was going to... It, it was gonna, just got super serious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that poor ball It was going to be really fun <laughs> and hilarious, and then it became very sad when it we did, involved it you. No. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the very first scene is 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 autobiographical. No way. Yeah. What with the awful stepdad saying horrible things. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and the um, basically that first scene, which is Steve Carell's character um, asking uh, Duncan, who's Tony Collette's son, um, what he thinks he is on a scale from one to ten, and he says six, and then uh, and then Steve answers, "Well, I think you're a three and explains why. That actually happened to me when I was a kid. I was fourteen in the way way back, you know, of a station wagon, headed to. Uh, we spent our summers up in Michigan, so we would drive all the way from North Carolina to Michigan, and and um, and basically that was a conversation we had our second year going, where he just felt like I needed to be more outgoing and. And take advantage of the all the kids in the summer vacation, and not st- uh, stick around the lake house. And so that was a conversation we had. Wow. It's still a shame you haven't listened to that advice. I know I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. So such a wise message, and I, I really have. I'm really. I'm maybe a three point five as I sit in this room. So that's been burning away all these years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so we, I told Nat that, and then we just sort of thought that's the perfect launch for this kid. Well, you say you share a comic sensibility. How, what would you say that sensibility is? Nat likes real, you know, like low brow stuff. Dumb. <laughs> and my stuff is very, like, thought provoking. Right. And, and uh, I'd almost say, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, genius level of comedy. Right. <laughs> So I guess I'm the Walter Matthau. <laughs> no, I knew it from the beginning because I was like, you know, any odd couple. You, I just went through every odd person who's played the odd couple. And I'm like, I now know I'm always the nebbish one, so or the the high strung one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it was just in sort of an ease because everyone sort of tried writing with different groundlings at different times, and 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 ours was felt at least like we didn't kill each other. Mm-hmm. Well done on that. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. thank you. Yet. So, so, Yet. <laughs> so you wrote the script eight years ago and it, it kind of came close before to being made before you guys uh, made it yourself. Did it did it change during that time and change back? Did you sort of keep tinkering with it? How did it how did it progress? I guess the biggest thing was we originally wrote it that took place in the 80s. Okay. Uh, and then um, a couple reasons. One, that skyrocket, skyrockets your budget right there that mm-hmm. you're going to do a period piece. So that was, um, and it, it was early that we dumped that idea because I think the timelessness of the idea felt like a better place for it to live where all these, uh, it, it sort of confuses you on the time because the car certainly is a throwback and Sam Rockwell's car is sort of a throwback, but it more defines them as characters than it does sort of set us into a place of time. Mm. That was my long-winded answer <laughs> to that. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> Tell me Nat, about it. well, I should, well, I should cap it. Nat, Nat's part got smaller, <laughs> uh, just because that, uh, talk about something else. That True. was it was. I did not for, test well. Did not, not test, test well. well, and we only tested two of us <laughs> to each other. And I just I gave him low marks. Wow. <laughs> and obviously, 
as well as writing, you've also directed. I mean, I imagine back when you first wrote the script, this was not a possibility at all. No, no one would have let. Was it the fact that you won the Oscar for The Descendants that that changed? Yeah, we went into rooms and we slammed those things down <laughs> and said, "Yeah, we're doing this now." <laughs> no, we. Uh, I think it's it's. You know, it certainly provided the momentum for us to return to the script, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we had we had been trying to get this thing made for a long, long time, and the timing of getting the script back into our hands kind of coincided with the success of the Descendants, and um, meaning that the the script was at a couple of different studios, and finally, like the the sort of ex- expiration date. Of, uh, finally came in in the sense that we got the script back without any kind of ties to it and um and so it was an opportunity for us to sort of hit the reset button and just say all right let's you know trim the fat so to speak and and cut all the baggage that we have you know accrued over the last 6 years and just start over and and in that process i think it having lived with the script for so long and seeing it sort of almost happen and then not happen and and hear other directors' visions of what they would do with the script and who they would cast, I think we finally sort of had the desire to take it on ourselves and and to really see the vision from start to finish. And so it was at that point we decided to direct it ourselves and and it was, um, it did coincide with The Descendants and and the Academy Awards and, and that I think provided, it didn't green light the movie Mm -hmm. in any sense but at least it uh started the conversation again it made i think it greased some things as far as getting a cast to read it you know um getting people you know financiers to sort of listen and it was still an uphill battle and still a struggle but at least uh i don't know it provided some currency for us to sort of you know spend and obviously, some of the cast you'd kind of come across before. You've worked with many of them in the past, but you know, how did you how did you get them all on board? You had Alison Janney and people like that, who are one of our favorites, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, Steve Carell. I guess you you shot near his house, which yeah. made it pretty yeah. much impossible for yeah. him to say no. No, yes. it really was. I mean, it no impossible. Like we wouldn't leave. We just set up camp, and he goes, "What are you doing here? Oh, we're here to shoot a movie. Oh, I'm in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really easy to make a movie LA. Yeah, we uh, well, Alison Janney is a friend of ours. Uh, um, at least we knew her uh, pretty well through social circles. And so she really was one of the first people we went to only because we had her in mind as we were writing Betty. And uh, But as far as Steve, yeah, he was the last component. You know, obviously we were trying to uh, get all the financing in order and stuff. And we needed that one last piece, uh, which turned out to be the, the Trent character. And we wrote a letter to him and he wrote back and said... Uh, I spend my summer with my family. I just, uh, you know, that's it's not an option. I love the script, but I, you know, I'd love to do it, but I can't. And so we sort of, you know, because we had come so far and sort of got pushed to, to like just keep pushing him. So we wrote it back, wrote back and said, well, what if we shoot in uh, your basically your vacation town in Marshfield, which is in the South Shore area of Boston? And he uh, pretty much said, okay, let's just do it. So the, he and and most of our cast biked to work and you know because it's such a small area mm. it's a really tiny little area and and it was all one street so it was pretty much uh, did they use little, little girls bikes yeah little girls bikes yeah so <laughs> yeah. we just insisted that everyone ride little tassel bikes you know to not really get in the character just for our own enjoyment yeah for your enemies absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and having been actors for so long and you de- dealt with a lot of directors how would you describe your directing style were you nice or were you kind of real mm. well we were 
Allison Janney said that we were good cop, bad cop. <laughs> yes. And I clearly was the good cop. No, she said and that. Jim I was actually a read dick. that in an interview. I was like, oh, wow, I feel bad. Yeah. But I, maybe I was. You I were feel, a dick. I you were a total dick. No, no, here's <laughs> what happens. We would say cut, and that would book it. Book it onto set and 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 just shower them with praise, and then I'd walk over and let's do another one. So I just literally contradicted what he said, but it's because he wanted to be the good cop. But uh, I think I uh, we did. I I think we tried to, uh, for us was pull from what we know as actors um, to your question, but to be a nurturing sort of place with trust. Jim, I didn't realize until researching this that you were involved in one of the biggest moments in TV history which is you were in the final episode of Friends yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. which I it, well, yeah, it was only fine. when I read your character name which was Nervous Plane Guy yes, I, <laughs> that, I, I, that I realised it was you please yeah. tell me this was one of the pivotal moments of your life yeah. and it felt like a part of history when it you really did but despite the fact that it didn't have a name <laughs> despite that I was just nervous the fact that I was sitting, got to sit next to Jennifer Aniston and be the reason that, that basically got Ross and Rachel together of course can I just say that yeah. I mean if it wasn't for me mm-hmm. we wouldn't have an ending uh, and no, it's so funny yet nobody remembers that. You know, really? Yeah. Mm. Have you seen it yet? No. Okay. <laughs> You've never seen the final yeah. episode of Friends. What have you been doing? I've just been waiting. I want. I just want to make sure the moment is right. You know. Yeah. I'm just... Matt just watches his own acting reel at home. <laughs> I, I, no, you know what was amazing about it really was because I I weirdly happened to arrive in Los Angeles in like '94 '95, which is when for us Friends uh, started. Mm. And so for those 10 years, we've been watching this show. And, and you know, that, there was sort of a wealth of sitcoms at that time, you know. But you were like, oh, it'd be so great to be on, like, at that time, Friends. Or for us, ER was big. So you're like, oh, I want to get on ER. And uh, it was, like, literally the last chance I could ever have to go in and audition for, for Friends. And so that whole week was very emotional and weird. It was like you're being at something that was coming to a close. And so you sort of felt like this out, you know, they're very nice, but they were in an emotional place. And so um, they it took a long time to shoot that episode in the sense that I think they just didn't want it to end. Mm-hmm. So I think that they were doing take every take. Plus they wanted to get all these emotional uh, moments right. But, uh, it, and there you were being nervous, playing guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now should I do it a little bit more nervous? Yeah. Should I do a little bit, play it a little higher anxiety? Yeah. What's so weird is half the people at home uh, listening to this were like, "Oh God, that, that was almost a seamless impression of me." But if you heard me nervous, that's how high pitched. That's I how. You, that's it's true. Uh, yes. Oh, I I, uh, I wanted to to last longer. <laughs> and presumably everyone you knew was trying to get out of you what was going on in, in this episode and you were, you know, signed oh, yes. all kinds of NDAs and would oh. be shot if anything happened. Yes, no, they would hand you your sides for the day and then they'd give, t- take them back. So there was no taking the, the script pages anywhere outside that building. They had weird security that, that week in particular. Oh. I was going to say, we touched on your um, Oscar win earlier on. Well, it was a great moment because I think people recognised both of you, but actually didn't know you were writers until till the moment you were stood up on that <laughs> yeah. stage. So I'm always interested about what the next day is like after you've won an Oscar. So what was that day like? I didn't go to sleep until about six thirty seven a.m. Mm. And so then I think it still feels like, wait, what just happened? You know, mm. <laughs> that really it like out of body, crazy. Yeah. You know, I woke up like. You know, I don't remember, like, at lunchtime and just, like, completely in a haze, you know, like, whoa, that was so bizarre. And then you look over, you know, 
to my nightstand in there the Oscar I had like put right into my like al- like alarm clock basically <laughs> and you're like wait what you know if it did sort of feel like that fairy tale thing of like finding the slipper like still there or something it was uh, I think very surreal out of body you know all those things that you can would imagine it being you know very um, shocking in a sense uh, and and wonderful you know, I the think. night the night it happens the the after moment not so much the parties is also a very strange moment. You'll be out on the street, and we would be going up to places, and strangers who you obviously uh, have no idea who these people are would come up to you, and it, it really was for a photo op. They don't know who you are, they don't care who you are, they don't know why you want it. They didn't watch the telecast. They just want to hold the Oscar and take a picture, maybe with without you, most likely, <laughs> and so. You you had this weird moment where these, you know, you're like, are you going to run away with this? And so you, there are many pictures where my hand is in the picture holding on to it <laughs> mm-hmm. while they hold it. Because there's this weird idea that they're just going to take off why someone would just run away. <laughs> so I think afterwards you make a lot of friends, mm-hmm. at least for a brief moment, a period of time. Uh, I have to ask, have you talked to Angelina Jolie ever? No. <laughs> no? No, no. I, uh, you know, that, that was... Um, that was a moment I didn't think was going to become as big a deal, you know, because I think that uh, we didn't know, you know, you never know whether you're going to be going up on that stage. And we certainly had had a little up and down track record as far as other award shows up until the Oscars. So, you know, lost a few. So we're like, well, we'll see what happens. And then they call your name and you sort of go to this out of body thing, you're hovering above yourself. You're sort of, uh, you know, out of sorts in a way. And it got up to the top of the stage, uh, the stage and, and we knew that Alexander Payne was going to speak on our behalf because we had our, they had sort of asked if you're multiple winners, one of you speaks for each other. No one ever adheres to that. That's why everyone's just over talking each other. But he, we were going to, and so we got up we there. We played by the rules. We played by the rules, <laughs> and I just I think I just realized, oh my god, I might not be up here, you know, and we're not going to speak. And then I just thought of Angelina just sort of owning that dress moment, you know, and I thought, well, that's a good way to just sort of own this moment. So I sort of copied her, not thinking that it was really about her as much as it was about the moment. And then, um, and then as, as we got to parties, they were like, have you gone online? And I was like, well, of course I hadn't, you know, what last thing I was going to do. And there were already these photo, mm. you know, sort of juxtaposition of, of both of us. And so I, I really didn't intend that to be as much as it was. So, <laughs> But I can't imagine she takes it very seriously. No, I can't imagine what this she bald does. guy no, with glasses does. I think she was, it was laughing with, not at. Yes, I think, no, very no. Much, I yeah. think she's. Okay, we're, we're, we, have, we have to finish up. I have two very, very quick questions. Yes. Uh, first of all, um, the dean in community, yes. who everybody loves, including us. Uh, Thank you. He is known for fancy dress. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite costume? Yeah, you know, I, I've always have. I've always. I go back to I think of season two uh, was like the Lady Gaga outfit, which I wore at Halloween. I just watched that last night. Oh, you did. Bizarre. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. No, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the one, and I felt it. I felt like you were yeah. wanting me to say that. <laughs> uh, you were mouthing it, which is weird. As I was, said yeah, it. But Lady Gaga, just because they made that outfit, you oh. know. And um, and what's next for you both? Is is the Kristen Wiig action comedy coming up? Is that going to be? Writing wise, yes, we are about midway, like in our, through our first draft of of an action comedy for Kristen, who we had we're in the groundlings with at the same time, performing good and bad bits, and <laughs> um, and and friends. So we would love we love her voice and want to work with friends when off whenever we can. Yeah, and then we're also writing another uh, project for Fox Searchlight, and again, sort of pulling from our 
own personal uh, dysfunction and pain. <laughs> um, so it'll be sort of a family uh, dysfunction comedy, I guess. All right. So. Well, yeah. Best of luck and thanks very much. And yes. The Way Way Back is out uh, this week, probably, as you listen to it. <laughs> no, it's I've very forgotten. official. I've, I've forgotten the date. <laughs> Put that bit in later. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Put it in later. And that interview brings us neatly onto reviews. Lots of reviews to get through this week, and not a lot of time to get through them. Let's start with the way way back. What do we think of this one? Um, really like this actually. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of a coming of age movie. It centres around uh, Liam James' character Duncan, who is a young kid, and we see him at the beginning. You've probably seen this in the trailer already. Um, Steve Carell, who is dating his mother, who's played by Tony Collette, asks him as they drive down to their summer cottage what he would give himself out of ten, what marks out of ten he would he would assess himself at, and he says, I don't know, six. And Steve Carell goes, I think you're more of a three. And this this causes a bit of a sort of crisis of confidence for the already not exactly confident um, Duncan, and so he um, is basically kind of struggling to deal with these appalling people with whom he's surrounded uh, the whole summer. He goes to work at a water park and finds an unlikely mentor in Sam Rockwell's uh, manager thereof. Um, he has a bit of a crush on the girl next door, Anasphia Robb. Her mum is the very drunken Alison Jenny, <laughs> and um, and it's basically just it's a very gentle little movie really great characters um one of those films where arguably nothing really happens but at the same time it's absolutely fascinating when it isn't happening <laughs> so um so yeah just beautifully done as you'd expect from from rash and facts and, and indeed from from that cast there are a lot of kind of laughs in it but it's not exactly a it's not quite a comedy it's probably and i hate to use the word dramedy but it's probably somewhere in that ballpark or a coma <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> it's not a coma. That seems harsh. No, no. Okay. I just throw it out there. Uh, and uh, Jim Rash is in this movie with 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 both, hair. Both are yes. Um, uh, Jim Rash plays, uh, but they both play Water Park um, employees. Uh, Nat Faxon's in charge of the of the queue for the for when the water slides. He has a, a fine line in, in making hot girls wait at the top so he can have a good ogle of them <laughs> in their bikinis. Uh, Jim Rash is the slightly more neurotic. Um, guy who works in the shop who keeps talking about leaving but it's clear he you know probably won't mm. Sam Rockwell was the standout for me he's often the standout for movies that he's in for me big fan of him so take that with a pinch of salt but he is so charming so charismatic yeah. so fun so full of energy uh, I want to watch it again just so I can hear the lines maybe pause them and, and slow them down so I can really get my uh, my head around them because he's just charm personified and as always there is a cracking dance scene uh, involving uh, Sam Rockwell so look out for that yeah. this is a very charming very sweet very I'd say mum friendly family friendly deep but fun and light at the same time uh, if that makes any sense uh, film so I do highly recommend yeah. this I had a big Great. smile on my face mm. as I left the theatre and we gave it four stars we and did so that's that's definitely a recommendation highly to the way way back immediately uh, it's not a three it's not a six it's more of an eight you'd say probably yeah I think that's fair okay, okay. good good <laughs> uh, let's move on now to Michael Bay's Pain and Game which stars Mark Wahlberg uh, and The Rock as two pumped up steroidal bodybuilders who decide to commit a little kidnapping and murder only for it to all go horribly wrong as you've heard it's based on the true story and this was trumpeted as Michael Bay's Back to Basics that's Basics with a Y in it a smaller movie a world away from the excess of Optimus Prime and his buddies but is it? No, it's not. This still feels very much like a Michael Bay movie. There are explosions and car crashes and weaponry and all that sort of stuff. Slow-mo and cameras whirling around the protagonists. Loads of spinning camera yeah. shots, loads of low cameras that come up to the feet of the appropriate person and then tip up and they go, wow, he's like a god. But It helps if you are the rock, who is a god. But yes, it is 
still a Michael Bay film, but it's a Michael Bay film more along the lines of Bad Boys 2 in terms of it being, uh, you know, 18 or it's a 15 actually, but it feels very visceral and bloody and it's full of sweary words and uh, death and danger. The trouble I had with this film is uh, is twofold, I think. It's too long, uh, but that is wrapped up in the second problem, which it's let it just be said, Michael Bay has never had trouble with the truth before. He's never based that as a, as a conundrum. But in telling this amazingly true story about three colossally stupid, um, and I mean colossally stupid, because uh, Anthony Mackie is also one of them. I should have, I should have mentioned that. Sorry. Yeah, he's not you know, normally playing the dumb guy, but he does very good dumb in this as a uh, man who takes so many steroids that he uh, has a problem with his nether regions, and this encourages him because he needs the money to fix it to partake in a little bit of kidnapping. In order to tell the story as it happened, which is so zigzaggy and real and do justice to that ridiculous story, it's too long and it's trapped by the structure it can't get away from. So in many ways, I was really impressed by this because provided that he stayed to the truth and I can't vouch for whether everything he did was exactly how it happened, obviously, it's on occasion incredibly entertaining. It is big and loud and funny and silly and then at times when it takes a turn for the dark incredibly dark mm. like really bleak if you're expecting this to be a romp it kind of isn't it is a twisted tale that should remind you a don't take steroids and b don't abduct people and c if you're going to don't be so damn dumb about it there are things in this movie where you'll be wanting to take notes as you watch it going did that really happen did that really happen did that really happen it's an indication of just how crazy it is that at the beginning it starts with unfortunately this is a true story two-thirds of the way through as something incredibly nuts happens it goes yes this is still a true story mm. it's not mm. trailblazing success american critics when it was released early this year didn't take too kindly to it mm. and it hasn't done that well in the box office but i would give it a pass certainly because there's a lot to dig into here and we we, we did we gave it uh, three stars yeah. so which as we always say is a recommendation so i think this is probably one you should catch in the cinema because yeah it's a base vision <laughs> it, it does look I mean the, the colours are great and it does look it does get that kind of Miami setting really well um, I, I did enjoy this I have to say I just thought um, I, th- I think the Rock's character is absolutely terrific he's so deeply stupid that there's there's a lot of joy to be had there and and it's also you know and he's also the, the most interesting one because he's been born again in prison and is, is trying to keep on the moral path while also abducting um, people and extorting them for money. So there's a, there's an interesting kind of little dynamic going on there. I mean, and it is just, it's such a crazy story that you will be sitting there gaping going, are you kidding me? Hmm. And there's a lot to be said for that on its own. Okay, so three stars for Pain and Gain. And next up in a packed week, we have the horror movie, which opened on Wednesday. Adam Wingard's You're Next, which is a home invasion movie with a twist, or a bunch of twists, actually. So thoughts on this one? This one is probably the second really good horror movie of the summer. It feels like it's been a while since we had, you know, any really great groundbreaking the Conjuring, presumably. Well, exactly after okay. the Conjuring yeah. uh, being the first of them, but but now the Conjuring and now this, you know, it seems like we're into a bit of a a horror kind of sweet spot suddenly. So this basically, uh, as our reviewer said, if you if you fell asleep watching a double bill of Festen and uh, them you'd wake up and this would be your dream sure. um, but basically it's a family get together in their very beautiful big mansion out in the middle of the forest for a lovely lovely family reunion um, and uh, and then mask killers break in and start killing them all horribly you know yeah, so but, yeah but then there's a fight back which is very very interesting there is uh, with uh, Sharni Vincent Sharni Vincent really fantastic. who's come a long way from step up 3D she certainly has a home and away I believe as well, 
so yeah, it's, it's very it's a very bloody, visceral, gruesome movie, but it has a lot of wit for it. it when it when it first hit the uh, the circuit, this movie's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in Toronto, two thousand and eleven, I believe. I first spoke to Adam Wingard about this movie in 2011 wow it's been on the shelf it was, I think it was caught up in some um, uh, there was some sort of bankruptcy thing with the company it was it was lodged with and then Lionsgate picked it up so, and they decided to position it in August and it was held as a new scream a kind of postmodern take on horror movies and it isn't quite as knowing or as or as, as deliberately funny as, as Scream is but it's a it's a rollicking good time at the movies and there's another horror movie coming up later uh, this uh, in, in the next couple of weeks which is also very very good I'm One Direction This Is Us yeah. I can't say that I, you shouldn't say that there are scary people out there Directioners will get us I'm really scared now I can't tell whether you're being serious or not no <laughs> so uh, four stars for your next uh, do go check it out uh, now it's time to pick apart Upstream Colour uh, in, <laughs> in about two minutes Phil can we Good do luck with that we've heard from Shane Creed in the podcast already today as you can probably tell he's incredibly cerebral smart man and he's his first movie primer he made for sort of £2.50 in a bag of peanuts and it's a fantastic sci-fi this is a sort of sci-fi romance kind of thriller in which in which (laughs) (laughs) it's the sort of anyway so (laughs) is it kind of the life cycle of this bizarre drug it's a super interpretive movie should we just say he wouldn't be drawn on exactly what it meant I think he just put it out for the world you can take in look into it what you will it's kind of this this psychotropic drug that gets into the water supply, the ether. So it passes from it, it, it's someone is drugged with it as a narcotic, as it, it, to, to steal their basically their, their 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 financial resources, and then it's passed on, and it eventually ends up in a pig. I can't explain how what the link is with that, but it's just a really yeah, it's like taken out. It's ta- it's from a it's just a. You're really selling this. It's, a, it's it's not really about that though. Did it's you walk very, out of this one as well? <laughs> I did not. Hey, <laughs> I was going to say nice things about it. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, yeah. Look, it's it's mystifying. It's enigmatic. It's beautiful. It's got a great uh, score, also written by Shane Gruth, who did um, the cinematography, I believe, as well. Andy sound appears. editing. Andy appears. Andy acts in it alongside Amy Simons, who's very good as well as the lady that has also been through this sort of drugged experience, and they're drawn together without really really knowing why. So if you strip away the pigs and the orchids and the strange sort of dye drug, and just look at it as a connection between two people, it's a really beautiful point love story you know the connection between two human beings have is a mystery in itself no one's quite sure where that chemistry comes from and here are these two people having that but with a lot of other things going on around it and it's metaphysical and it's very intelligent and it's you can watch it on any level you like it's got four stars from us and um, a, a big recommendation really it's a very different sort of film from Pain and Gain for instance <laughs> I'd love to see that as a double bill it's, it's the same thing the steroids and the blue you know yeah, the blue yeah not really um, <laughs> but it's a really mesmerising film that marks him out again after Primer is a, a very it's taken him a long time to make this film he's tried to make another film in the interim he's got it done on his own terms and he's made something that's creatively unique I would say he doesn't want to do big Hollywood films but he's going to be a very interesting talent to watch fantastic and uh, interesting enough the movie is edited by David Lowry who's the director of Ain't Them Body Saints and he's going to be on next week's podcast 
as well so do this now for that one oh, we should ask him how together. he edited it yeah uh, yeah uh, and uh, so the four stars indeed for upstream colour and last but not least it's Morgan Spurlock's advert uh, sorry uh, Morgan Spurlock's documentary about hot teeny bopper sensations uh, the One Direction I believe is their their name uh, in which Niall Sane Horace Louis Harry Jeff Tadpole Blitzy and your favourite one Liam reveal their innermost selves thoughts on this one Helino um, well it certainly is a movie about One Direction congratulations Morgan <laughs> Spurlock you've done it again it's interesting though isn't it because this isn't a typical Morgan Spurlock movie he's not he hasn't in, injected himself no. so to speak into One Direction um, this isn't about him listening to all their music and going slowly insane this is a very straight up fly on the wall it, yeah it's it's a it's a I mean a bit of a concert movie obviously it's a bit of a you know the boys being charming backstage there's nothing really here that feels I mean like and I say this as someone who knows nothing going in there's nothing here that feels revelatory you know there's nothing here that feels like I couldn't have figured it out or guessed it um, I mean it's if you'd like them it's fine and it's very charming and there's some moments of humour there's a bit where Martin Scorsese turns up which yep. is one of the least expected cameos I think of all time um, but it is not going to you know change your worldview. if you'd like them already you you will absolutely love this if you hate them already you will probably fall asleep or wish you could um, Why would you be watching them? What? That's a good question. Yeah, basically, this is for the fans, and the fans are going to be fine with it. So mm. that, that's the thing yeah. about this movie is that you can't really say it's good, it's bad. It sounds like it's a bit of a, um, you know, it's a job for uh, Morgan Spurlock, and he does that job. So yeah. if you if you want to hate One Direction, go ahead. But if you do like it, then this will be a perfectly decent documentary. Yeah. He wanted to test himself. I think he wanted to work within the confines of a big studio documentary, and it's it's. Uh, uh, you know, it's not a it's not a, it's not a bad result. It's not his no. best movie, but yeah, it's actually got it's got merits. And I know people will condemn the movie sight unseen, but uh, perhaps they shouldn't. Exactly. But, uh, three stars for that one. Also about this week's a French noir classic based on Patricia Highsmith's uh, novel, a talented Mr. Ripley, uh, playing Soleil, starring the great Alan Delon. Uh, that is fantastic to do. Check that out if you can get down to a, an art house cinema that is showing it. It's also one of Phil's uh, living room in a loop. I imagine this weekend. Uh, I saw it. Just last month, mm. and it is the talent of Mr. Ripley. It is the talent of Mr. Ripley. Yes, it is. Yep. And Alan Dillon is Alan Dillon. Yes. If you like and those Matt two Dimon things, is Matt Dimon. <laughs> Matt Dimon. That's all I have to say. Okay, and that is it for the Empire Podcast. <clears throat> That's it for the Empire Podcast in association with uh, Squarespace. Uh, join us next week for more formulated fun. Where we'll be joined by Thor himself. Mr. Chris Hemsworth and his Rush co-star Daniel Brühl. Helen is drooling already. Uh, also, we'll have what? I just spilled my water. Brühling, <laughs> brooling. Uh, also, we'll have another up-and-coming American indie director, as I've mentioned, David Lowry, who's the guy behind Ain't Them Body Saints. And don't forget to check out our World's End spoiler special with Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost. That is up as we speak and if you ever happen on the iTunes store and you fall over and you accidentally trip and you click and you give us five stars on the way down well that's okay with us you can also give us one star but what would be the point in that anyway that is it from us it's goodbye from Helen goodbye I forgot your name it's goodbye from Ali bye now it's goodbye from Phil au revoir and it's goodbye from me I'm off to walk out early bye Hello and welcome to the science bit of the Empire podcast where Ali the editor, that's uh, me by the way, tells you a little bit more about our sponsor Squarespace and how to make use of their free trial and discount deal. If you're not already in the know or missed Chris saying it earlier, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio or online store. 
or whatever else. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE9. But you want more details. I understand that. So just for you, here are a few more reasons why you should use Squarespace. For starters, Squarespace is very easy to use indeed, as well as being user-friendly and doing all the tricky stuff for you, search engine optimization, hosting, and making your site mobile, tablet, portable device friendly. Just for starters, they've also got a huge vault of pre-prepared designs and style options for you to be getting on with and tweak to your taste. Sign up for a year and get a free domain name. Enjoy an on-hand support team working 24 hours a day, seven days a week and all for $8 a month, which you can translate into UK money if you have one of those calculator things, with, as mentioned earlier, a free trial and 10% off your first purchase with the Empire Podcast's very own offer code, Empire9 via squarespace.com. Thank you for sticking around and listening to me talking about our sponsor. If you are even considering making a blog, do give Squarespace a chance because, you know, you listen to the Empire Podcast and you obviously love us. I've decided that. You obviously do. Anyway, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.